Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Foley litigation partner, Scott Ellis. Scott sits in the firm's Houston office, where he's the vice chair of Foley's national energy litigation practice and the hiring partner for Houston. In this discussion, Scott reflects on growing up in Lakeville, Massachusetts, attending the American University for Undergrad and the University of Houston for Law School. But of course, his path to those things wasn't that straightforward. One thing you're going to learn as you listen to this conversation with Scott is that Scott is a first-generation college student. His parents did not attend college, and actually, him attending college was not at all a foregone conclusion. So we talk about that. We talk about some of the advice he got along the way that actually caused him to decide to apply to college at all. And then we discuss the fact that we both attended American University and were actually there for the same time. At least we overlapped for a couple of years. I then get Scott to talk about the decision to attend law school. And I have to say what you're also going to hear is Scott has a tremendous work ethic. So he worked while in high school. He also worked while in college. And he was able to take that work ethic. And it sounds like it really translated well for him when all he had to do was focus on law school, which of course is still plenty to focus on after that. We talk about Scott's path to Foley. We discuss his litigation practice, what it means to have a practice focused on the energy sector. And he then discusses his role as the hiring partner for Houston, as well as his commitment to diversity inclusion, particularly in the Houston area. This is a really fun conversation, just jam-packed with advice. And we end our discussion with Scott talking about the importance of finding a profession or a legal practice that you really love. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott. Scott Ellis, welcome to The Path and the Practice. This conversation in particular is a long time coming. I'm surprised it's taken me this long to get you on. But let's start by having you introduce yourself, giving your professional introduction. Sure. So I'm Scott Ellis. I'm a Houston partner. Been at the firm for about 15 years. And my practice focuses on helping clients really navigate the litigation process, mostly from the energy standpoint. So most of my clients are in the energy sector, although not exclusively, but I handle mostly breach of fiduciary duty, breach of contract, and fraud type cases for clients who need the help. And a good percentage of my clients, of course, are in Texas, but I serve clients all over the country. So we will unpack exactly how it is, why it is you can give that introduction. I always laugh at myself that I'm like, tell me what you do as a lawyer and then let's not talk about it is how the the podcast goes for about the first 20 minutes. But I think it's so important for listeners to hear the way all of our attorneys introduce themselves professionally and then to jump into the stuff you wouldn't find on the bio. So next up, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah. So I grew up in Massachusetts, a small town called Lakeville. It's in southeastern part of Massachusetts. Closest uh, uh, big city that you might know is Plymouth where the uh, Mayflower landed. So that's where I grew up. What was childhood like? If I found you, say, late elementary school, middle school, what kind of kid were you? What were you into? Yeah, so pretty active. I was outside a lot in Lakeville, very small community, uh, rural community, certainly not a big city kid, and went to small elementary school, 
Uh, of course, uh, Native American culture was pretty big where I grew up. And so I actually went to a school called Assawampsit Elementary School, but a lot of time spent outdoors. And tell me about, so a lot, of, a lot of time spent outdoors. Were there any particular sports? Was it just generally outdoors or did you play anything in particular while you were in school? Yeah, so I did. I played Pop Warner football until, if you know me, you know I tend to be a shorter guy. And so as people started to get big and I didn't get big with them, I stopped playing because I would get crushed every practice and still enjoyed it. But uh, at some point I had to realize that uh, I wasn't going to be on the football team, probably wasn't going to make the basketball team or at least the NFL. And, you know, my thinking as a fourth grader being on a D1 volleyball team was probably out as well. You know, it's funny. I was just debating whether or not to share this, but I'll, I'll share it. It's fine. So I'm a fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. Not everybody's probably heard of him, but some people have probably heard of Gary V. He's an enthusiastic character out there in the world. But I raise him because he raised him because he's also not a big a big guy, and he frequently tells the story of how he killed it in whatever sport in the third grade. Like he's like, I peaked in third grade, and then everybody else just got bigger, and I didn't. So, I, but but that summer, I was amazing. <laughs> I was so fast. Yeah, so I did. I actually did run track, and the shorter races were better for me, and I was actually pretty quick. And so even into high school, I I ran track. And the other thing, just to get a sense for you, did you have any any siblings? I did. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And so what was the dynamic for you in high school? It sounds like you were running track. What was the decision-making process into like going into college? How did that transpire for you? And where did you go? Yeah, sure. So for me, the college decision experience was probably a little bit different than the other folks that I've heard on the podcast. And so I grew up, as I mentioned, in a very small town. And I would say a very small percentage of the students went to college. And so for the most part, people went to either the military or they did some sort of job that maybe their parents did. And so my mom was a nurse and my dad works in the restaurant industry. He makes salads. And so neither of them had a college education. And so I was not brought up with the mindset that I was going to college. It was what sort of job might I get? And so I guess the idea of college didn't happen until much later into my high school career than I think some other people might have. I'm just really happy that you paused and shared that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but I think that's the experience for many. And I say this, I feel like most shows, but I'm going to say it again. When someone pulls up your bio now, sees you're a law firm partner, that's not something they expect you to say, right? They kind of expect you to say, yes, college was a given. I applied to this school and I knew that and I've been excellent at everything I've done ever since. <laughs> and so I just think it's so important to explore those understandings and experiences, because I have no doubt that a number of people can can relate to that. So then how did college come onto the radar? And for you in particular, I really wanted to get you on the show because we discovered shortly after I joined the firm, which is, you know, closing in on two years ago, that we actually went to the same college. We overlapped for a couple of years. So I also want to talk about that as well. But how did college come to be then? Yeah. So when I was probably a junior in high school, my grades were solid and I was pretty active in school. And I had a guidance counselor come to me and say, look, you might consider college. Have you ever thought about it? And of course, I really hadn't. It was more of something, maybe I'd heard of that. I know other people might have done that, but that really wasn't the path that I was on or, or that I thought I was on. And he came to me and he said, what do you think about applying to college? And we grew up, uh, we didn't have a lot of money at all. And 
I didn't have the money to apply to many colleges. And so I said, well, I don't even know what I would do in college. I don't know what I would study. I'm thinking at that point, I had already had a, a military recruiter come to the house and was really down that path and taken the ASVAB test, which is the entry exam for the military, and thought that that's the direction that I was going in. And he said, well, why don't you consider applying? See what happens. And so I said, okay, I'll apply to one school. I'll apply early admission. It will be one fee. And if I get in, I'll go. And if I don't get in, I won't go. I'll join the military. And so as you've given the spoiler alert, I got in and I went to American, which was in DC. I really did, as I started to think about colleges and where I might want to go, I really did want to get out and explore the world. And there's a funny story, and I'm going to tell it because I I think back, and, and I think a lot of people probably have these same inflection points, these same roads that kind of veer off and you develop your life based on that, right? And so the same guidance counselor said to me, well, what do you like when I was trying to figure out what sort of area I might study in college? He said, well, what do you like? And I had had a really good friend in high school. Her parents moved her to England. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in international stuff. And it was just one of those things that you just say, right? I didn't, I didn't have anything else to, that I had on my mind. And so I said, maybe international something. And he came back the next day. And I re- it's one of these conversations that you remember very vividly. And he said, well, what about international relations? And that just sounded amazing, right? I mean, oh, yes, international you're, you're relations. Like, yes, Do I absolutely. get to travel, right? Yes. <laughs> and so then I said, well, what's the best school for international relations? And Alexis, you know, at the time anyway, it was either Georgetown or American. And I said, well, what's the best, what's the highest ranked this year? And he said, it's American. I said, okay. I'll apply early admission to American. And so that's how that came to pass. That's yeah. amazing. I'm glad you told that story because I was going to ask why in the world American University out of all the schools, me going to American was also extremely random. I, I was set on another school. I was actually set on Emory and I got a fee waiver from American. And I was like, sure, let's apply there. And then when all was said and done with like financial aid and scholarships, even though I literally never visited the school and can't say I knew a ton about it. I ended up going to AU. You know, I would I wouldn't change it, but it's it is funny because you know you look back at the process you took, and maybe you know not all of us knew everything at eighteen, particularly not the way that certain people do now. With I mean, yeah, there was the internet, but it was still different times <laughs> back then. So I think I think that's funny. And then so what we discovered is I was I was two years behind you at American, so we would have been on campus for for two years together, never, never meeting. But I think in general, when you're not on the East coast or in the DC area to find a fellow American university grad is somewhat rare. So we were both like, wow, oh my gosh. Yeah. We were there at the same time, but tell me a bit about, about that adjustment then to law school. You know, as you mentioned, you weren't raised constantly being told like it's high school and then college, you know, you did end up going, you arrived there and just generally speaking, what was the experience like for you? Yeah. So I was really lucky just prior to going off to college, I got a call and I had applied again, same guidance counselor said, why don't you apply for some scholarship money? And I was really lucky to apply and he helped me fill out the application and submit. And it was the uh, first year that the Henry David Thoreau Foundation picked their scholars. So this was 1999. And I was selected for one of those eight spots to receive a four-year package that would help pay for American. And so that was a huge help because I had no idea how I was going to pay for college. And so I say that because it's related to my experience while in college and that adjustment. So I had worked at Burger King to help my family on the money side. 
And I had worked at Burger King. I probably by that point, I think I started at 14. And so I had been there several years at that point. And I knew I needed to get a job when I went to college to pay for the things you need to pay for in college, you know. And I went and, you know, in Friendship Heights in just kind of north of the city, northwest D.C., right over the line, there's a place called Friendship Heights. And I applied to work at Maggiano's, which is a Italian restaurant. And they, I remember them asking me if I had restaurant experience. And maybe the foresight of being a lawyer, I said, of course, I have experience working at a restaurant. Of course, a little bit different working from Burger King to a you know server at a restaurant. And so anyway, I, long story short, I started working at as a server at Maggiano's and then as a bartender. And then I eventually became the head of private dining at Maggiano's during college. And so a lot of my experience during college was really focused on working at Maggiano's, making at that time in my life, what I thought was really great money, you know, to help support myself. And then obviously focused on the schoolwork as well. But that transition from high school to college was made a little easier because I had a really good support group at Maggiano's of all places. That's amazing. Also, you're bringing back memories because Maggiano's, that's one of those places where the parents would take, like your parents came to visit. There was a good chance you went to Maggiano's. So that's just bringing back some memories. But also there's a number of things you've said and I need to actually get better about asking guests about part-time jobs in high school or also jobs in food service or bartending, because I have this theory that there's a lot you can learn, particularly in the hospitality industry, that I actually think translates really well to being a lawyer and being in a professional services firm. Because at the end of the day, we are very client-oriented. And I think it's important to highlight that because, you know, on the flip side, and we'll get into this a bit because I know you've done, you know, so much work at the firm and even outside of the firm related to diversity and inclusion. I just think people will discount those experiences that don't sound like they're this, you know, white collar in an office building experience. And they'll believe it won't, hasn't contributed, you know, to their skill set or isn't valuable. And I have this suspicion that it actually very much is. So, you know, chances are, as we keep talking about, about your career, maybe you'll make some observations as to how, you know, what things you learned as a bartender about people or at Maggiano's likely, I'm, I'm guessing they've continued to serve in your practice. They, yeah, definitely they do. And I think that what I needed at that time in my life was the ability to be able to talk to people that were different than me, right? So my, the community that I grew up in was very homogenous, right? And so to go from this small community in Massachusetts to then living in DC, a big culture shock, right? You can imagine. And then working at, you know, a restaurant that catered to everybody, right? And to be able to strike up a conversation with anybody and to be able to hold a conversation and really communicate with professional people. As you mentioned, you know, that's the place that it's a nicer restaurant, right? At least it was when I was working there. And I think still is now, but I had to develop the skills that I didn't necessarily develop as a younger kid to be able to speak to anybody and hold a conversation and engage somebody and conversation. And I think that that absolutely is applicable to what I do today. I mean, it really informs a lot of what we do, particularly as partners, as you go out and start to develop business, right? 
Yes. I feel like in some ways that's like the seed of like a superpower forming <laughs> that is necessary to be a um, you know really successful partner at a law firm. But then also you are bringing back some memories for me personally being an American because for me it was, yeah, I, I'd visited DC before. I'd been on a couple of vacations with my family, but to meaningfully like spend time in DC with so many different types of people. And there also was a little bit of culture shock around socioeconomic differences and hearing a student say essentially that like their dad just wrote a check or they're not eligible for financial aid because they were attending school from outside of the US were things that I certainly, you know, I hadn't encountered before. So I won't I won't go too far into the because we have a lot of ground to cover, Scott, but you definitely just dislodge that that memory. So let's talk about law school. So I follow everyone's path on LinkedIn as I do these podcasts. And I could see that you did focus on international relations. So you know you went through with that, but then also economics. So be interested as to, we now know why you picked international relations. Why did you add on economics? And then how does the seed for law school get planted? Yeah, so I felt like, and economics didn't honestly play a big role. Energy and environmental stuff did. And I'll tell you why in a second. But economics for me was an area that I had never been introduced to before. I had never thought in terms of, because we didn't have the money, right? I didn't think of terms of investing or any of those things. It's just not part of my upbringing, right? And so economics was offered. It was something that I knew maybe I should understand a little bit better. And so I kind of followed that path for my minor. But environmental and energy really played a large role for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was something that I was very interested when I was interested in when I was in high school. And I had a couple teachers who really helped me develop that interest, both from an environmental standpoint, but also the energy standpoint as well. And the Henry David Thoreau Foundation, part of their scholarship is really focused on developing young people who have a strong interest in environmental issues. And so the scholarship that I mentioned was really focused and awarded as a result of my interest in environmental issues. And so I continued to develop that interest while in college, worked for an environmental and energy think tank on Capitol Hill, and then also worked for an arm of the Department of Energy and really focused on distributed generation, which we now hear a lot about in the energy field nowadays. So were you able to do that while, and you were also working at Magianos as you were working at the other opportunities in college? That's a, that's yeah. a lot. That's <laughs> good. It was born out of necessity, but it was something that I had always done growing up in high school as well. I, I spent uh, many hours at Burger King. And in fact, did the overnight shift. I would do the overnight shift at Burger King. So I would uh, get out of school, have a couple hours for homework, head up to Burger King. I was the night manager. I'd work all night, get off in the morning in time to make it to school. So I was very used to being busy and being efficient with my time, which definitely I think helps what I do now. Well, absolutely. But sleep, who needed sleep then? Not you. No, I definitely need not. sleep now. I definitely need <laughs> sleep now. <laughs> As a young kid, I didn't. It's taking a lot. I I will not go down this path. I'm going to flag the path to ask questions about things you learned about the way food is prepared. And so we, there was another podcast with, oh my gosh, the associate's name is escaping me, but he worked at Cops Custard, which is like a Milwaukee area, very well-known burger place. And when he said that, I was like, we need to talk about how custard's made. I'm sorry, but we're not, we're not going to do that today, Scott. But tell me about, so you're in law school. You had these opportunities. You had that focus on, I think you said, you know, environmental. So where does law school come from? Why did you attend law school after college? 
Yeah, so I quickly realized that in order, and you know this, in order to focus on international relations and get a job in D.C. in international relations, a bachelor's degree is probably not going to get you there, right? Uh, You probably need a master's, and even then, you're cutting it close. You probably need a Ph.D. to get somewhere that you really are interested in working for. And so I didn't see that as my path. And as, as I mentioned, my reason for selecting international relations, while very interesting, was a little flimsy, right? It wasn't something that I had really, really thought about a lot before I chose that path. And so I feel as though I wasn't sure exactly what the next step was going to be. And I think that's important for the listeners to understand that because I talked to, in my role as hiring partner, many, many students who don't know what career path they're going to take until much later, even in into law school. And so I guess I had met my wife in, at American. She grew up in Houston. And so that's the connection to me in Houston. So we ended up moving back to Houston after undergraduate school and settling in Houston. She went to UT Law. I went to U of H Law. And part of the reason why I chose U of H was, of course, they have a strong focus on energy law. And obviously, the community in Houston is very focused on energy law as well, which is kind of what my focus area was. All right. We're going to talk a little bit about your experience in law school. But first, just in case the listener is curious and wants to see me get way too excited about custard. It was the episode with Greg Heinen. It's episode 27. And Greg is also, I think he's essentially a senior associate at this point in litigation. And, you know, obviously Scott is a litigation partner. We'll be talking about that. So I'd recommend people check that out, that out as well. But now, yeah, let's talk about you go to law school. What is that like for you? You know, we won't spend too long on it because we still have a lot of other things to talk about. But what do you recall about adjusting to life as a law student? So law school was the first time I didn't work outside of law school, right? Or outside of school. And so that was probably the biggest adjustment was that I had all of a sudden a good amount of time to really focus on studying. Whereas in undergraduate school, I didn't. And I did well in undergraduate school at American, but I honestly didn't spend a lot of time. And I feel like law school as many of us know, at least it was my experience that you had to spend a lot more time devoted to studying to, number one, understand the material, but number two, get the grades that would give you options to do what you might want to do. And so for me, I just felt as though I couldn't work or I shouldn't work. I should really focus. This three years should be focused. That was in part made possible because my in-laws lived here and allowed me to stay at their place. And so I didn't have the extra expense of room and board and all of that stuff that goes with it. And I took out a bunch of loans. I didn't have to take out any loans for American. So, you know, it's funny, your experience reminds me a little bit of that of a student athlete. So the, some other Foley attorneys who I've had on the show who were student athletes, they talk about going to law school and they're like, yes, it was hard. Yes, it was an adjustment, but I suddenly had all this free time <laughs> because, and so for you, while it was great that you now had could dedicate essentially, maybe even almost all of your your bandwidth to law school, I imagine there was this level of like, wow, I, I just have more time than I've had in years. Yeah, I think that's right. And what do you do to fill the time is always my question. I tend to be a very busy person and I like to be a busy person. And so one of the things that I did that ended up keeping me very busy is I helped start a law journal. And so I thought that the University of Houston needed an environmental and energy law and policy journal because it didn't have one. And so me, along with three of my friends, started a law journal that took up a extraordinary amount of time. That's amazing. So you you created a job for yourself is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I created a job. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. 
It took a lot of time. I'm really proud of it, but it was something that took a lot of time. That's amazing. I mean, obviously a testament to your work ethic, but I'm sitting here and I was like, you know, couldn't just enjoy not having <laughs> additional jobs. Okay. So let's talk about for for you, how it is, did you know you wanted to be a litigator? And then we also need to transition into how Gardier comes on the scene because it, it looks like, you know, you joined Gardier after after law school. And then just for the listener, for listeners who don't know, Foley and Lardner and Gardier merged about three and a half years ago. So we'll probably say the words Gardier a lot, but that's because for, you know, a significant portion of your career that that was the firm where you were where you were working. But yeah, tell me about that. How did you decide on litigation? How did you get connected to Gardier? Yeah. So for me, I had no idea coming in in similar way uh, going into college. I had no idea what I wanted to do in law school. And I actually think that that's pretty consistent with many students that I interview for positions as 1Ls, but also 2Ls. And so for the listeners out there, I want them to know that 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 is a very common thing, right? And so for me, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I certainly didn't think I wanted to stand up in a courtroom and argue motions or cases to a judge. Number one, I didn't know really what that was all about. Number two, public speaking at that point in my life was not something that was at the top of my list of something that I was interested in. And so what changed? And so I guess I was focused more on transactional, although I didn't know what that was either. I just knew that it didn't involve standing in front of a judge, which seemed more appealing at the time. What changed was I had an internship with a federal judge, Judge Hittner, who's still on the bench and although senior status at this point, and sitting in his courtroom and seeing other attorneys do what I do now was really eye-opening. And I saw really good attorneys and I saw not so good attorneys. And I thought to myself, particularly instructive, the not so good attorneys, because I said, you know what? I think I can probably do a better job than that. And so that gave me some confidence to say, I think that would be pretty fun to do. And so that started, that was the kind of inflection point that got me on the path of thinking, I may be interested in this whole trial lawyer thing. I may be interested in practicing litigation. And so that was the point. That's what got me on that path. I was just say that's wonderful that, you know, it's nice to see, it's nice to see great lawyers. It's nice to see some not so great ones. So then you can say, you know what, worst case scenario, I think I could perform better than that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so where did Gardeer come on the scene? So I went to a 1L reception and I did not see myself and you can probably figure out why I did not see myself working for a big firm that wasn't on the radar screen. It wasn't something I was really interested in. And I believed at that point, just based on rumors, right, that working at a big firm was a miserable life. You never had time for yourself. You never never had time for your friends or family. And it was essentially a sweatshop, right? And so that's what my perception of a big firm was at the time. And that's not what I was interested in. At that point, I really started to think that I'm going to jump full into this litigation thing and I'm going to be the best trial attorney I could be. And I wanted to be in the courtroom. I wanted to have early responsibility in talking to clients and developing strategy. So were you thinking government? Like where were you initially thinking? If not, if not a law firm, where did you think? I was thinking probably small firm. I was thinking a boutique litigation firm may be what I was best suited to do. And so where Gardier comes on the scene is I had gone to a 1L reception and I had met some of the Gardier attorneys. And I, my perception of what a big firm wa- was started to change, right? Because I'm meeting real people who are 
nice and they don't seem overworked and they they seem really smart and they seem like they're working on really interesting cases. The younger associates seem to get lots of really interesting experience. And I thought, well, maybe my perception of a big firm might be a little bit off. And nonetheless, I uh, come OCI, I said, okay, I'm still focused on this uh, smaller firm. And I remember going to the career counselor office, CDO, I think they called it at the time, career development office. And I said, I think I'm going to go with this small firm route. That's really where I'm focused. And I remember the career services officer telling me, look, your grades are really good. And a lot of people with good grades would really want to work in a large firm. Why don't you consider that? And in Texas at the time, and I don't know what it was like around the country, but in Texas at the time, you could split your summer into two six-week programs. And the career services officer encouraged me, do one big firm and do one boutique firm and see what you think. And so that's what that's how I set it up. So I did my first half of my summer at Gardeer. I did the second half at a small boutique litigation group. And I knew even before I left Gardeer that that was going to be the place that I wanted to work and uh, was really you know crossing my fingers that I got a job offer from them and uh, did. And I've been here ever since. There's a, a couple of things to say about that. Um, one, it, it is interesting to me how Gardier definitely pushed against whatever you know stereotypes you had around large law firms. I think, and that's something that a lot of students deal with today. And all these law firms sound the same. <laughs> like, who? How am I supposed to tell the difference? I know we'll probably talk more about this in your role as hiring partner. But the bottom line is there there are differences culturally. And there's something I wanted to add, and we don't we don't talk about as like a lot anymore because the merger is more so in the rearview mirror, having been three and a half years out. But I think at least one of the things that I think made for a successful merger was that culturally Gardier and Foley were very similar. And so, you know, I think as we, you know, talk more about your career and experiences you've had, like that very much still translates into the culture of Foley and Lardner as well. So I just wanted to highlight highlight that for listeners. But all right, so you you join Gardier, you start as a junior litigator. I'd love to just get some reflections from you on, and this is some time ago at this point, but just gearing up as a junior litigator and advice you may have or things things you learned, maybe the easy way or the hard way. Yeah. So I think for me, I was always very engaged in wanting to learn. And I think that that's the most important advice that I give to people who say, what makes a successful whatever, whether it be a summer associate or whether it be a first year, second year associate is be engaged, love what you do. And that's how you're going to learn. That's how you're going to get the best experience. And I think I took that approach. And very early on, I was doing what I wanted to do when I decided that I wanted to be a litigator. And that was helping prepare for trial, helping partners get ready for hearings, get ready for mediation, helping partners get ready for that uh, initial client call after you've received the documents and gone through them. And so I was really excited about that part of the training because I I think of practicing law at a large firm, at least at the beginning, is uh, somewhat of an apprenticeship, right? You learn from people. uh, And what I love about Foley and Gardier is that you're not assigned to a single partner. You're assigned to a group and you learn from many different people and you start to develop your own practice. You start to develop your own abilities, but also you're taking what you really like from Audrey or from Alex and you're saying, okay, I'm going to use this in my practice because I think that that's really effective and it fits my personality. So I guess 
as I developed as a young associate, I really appreciated how the structure was set at Gardier and, and Foley as well. Yeah, there's so many things that came to mind as you were were saying that, but about that engagement, being really interested, asking questions. And I think one of the hardest things when you're when you're junior in your career is because, of, like you said, in many ways, lawyers still learn through more of an apprenticeship model. Although the difference is now with big firms like ours, we do have this really robust talent management, you know, team and system behind you as well. But at the end of the day, a lot of it's that in-person interaction with the partners or associates that you're working with and just being open to that that feedback. And I will never get tired of stressing this, particularly for the law students listening. I would imagine a third or maybe half when we get into these recommendations um, with other guests on the show say the same thing. But that's why in a lot of ways, I think this podcast is a little bit of a pocket mentor. You know, you can hear from a lot of attorneys and perhaps if you hear enough say the same thing, you will listen. But taking feedback being coachable. These are all skills that you maybe didn't gain in high school when it was sort of just a matter of memorizing and getting an A. And so just those those dynamics are so important. And actually, so the episode before yours is with Peter Lowe, um, who has a similar role to, as to you, at least in terms of hiring partner. He's over at Dallas and you're Houston. But something we were talking about, and I can't help but pick up on again, is um, something I'm asked quite a bit as D- Director of Diversity and Inclusion. And I know you have some thoughts on this, Scott, but it's students will come up to me and say, Alexis, but how do I, how can I tell if a firm cares about diversity? And I'll say, you know, a lot of our websites look the same. It's very hard to glean from just scrolling websites. Um, And what I'm going to say to you is going to sound totally bizarre, but something you need to really focus on are the feedback mechanisms, the training mechanisms, the culture around your development. And so it's funny because believe it or not, I think a lot of what you said also connects to that as well. So for what that's worth for listeners, but I also want to talk about what your practice is now. I've read your bio, others can read it, but like, what is your mix of clients and what is your focus as of today? Yeah. So, you know, I consider myself in many ways a a generalist. And so, you know, I like to try cases. I like to work cases up and I like to solve problems for clients, right? So that's what I'm excited about. That keeps me waking up every day and saying, I'm looking forward to getting to the office and solving an issue that the client has, right? And getting to a resolution that's in the best interest of the client from a a business standpoint. And I think for me, my focus tends to be, as I mentioned at the at the top of this, is that, you know, my focus is on energy, mostly energy clients, but not exclusively, right? And so, and some people say, well, you're an energy lawyer, so that means you must be doing royalty disputes and downhole blowout sort of things. And while I do some of that stuff, that's not really the focus of my practice. The focus of my practice is I am helping clients who happen to be in the energy world solve problems from breach of contract or from a breach of fiduciary duty in the fraud cases that I mentioned earlier. And just because the case is about an energy-related issue or the client is in the energy industry, my focus is on the contract that was breached, right? And so I'm not exclusively focused on energy, although because I am in Houston, a lot of my clients tend to be in the energy electricity space and energy services space. And as you know, Alexis, I serve as the vice chair of energy litigation nationwide. And so my focus isn't just in Texas, it's also outside of Texas. And, you know, I enjoy that role as well. I may have mentioned this earlier, but I also am an adjunct professor at the University of Houston. And so in that role, in that job, my focus is on trial advocacy. That's what I teach. I guess this is my third academic year that I've taught there. And, you know, as I said, 
while my focus is energy in terms of industry, my real passion is trial advocacy and frankly, teaching younger attorneys here at the firm, but also students uh, about how to try a case, how to be a strong advocate. That's part of what I do. And I really enjoy that part of my job. Well, you probably see me smiling as you're unpacking all of that, because I just think you've done an excellent job at showing the many components or or layers, essentially, to one's, one's um, practice. So there's the just nuts and bolts of how to be a good litigator, which I'm certain is what you are covering um, when you're doing, doing trial ad at the law school. But then there are, you know, you get people will have industry focuses or focuses, or they, they tend to work with clients in a certain sector. And that, like you said, it doesn't change the nature necessarily of the work you do, but there's likely certain terminology or issues that can frequently come up or that an energy company is more likely to be presented with than a company that does something else that you, of course, have experience with because of that repeat exposure. But it is a really important distinction. And also it's something that as a lawyer, and why I think it can be hard to, why being a lawyer is difficult is you're continually building that skill set. So at first, maybe you're just focused on like, what is litigation? Like, how do, what, how do I draft a motion? What is going on? And then you can start focusing on, okay, what kind of clients do I tend to serve? How do I become their go-to business advisor? And then something that I don't know if listeners will catch, but a lot of the partners, and this is not, it's not because I handed you a script or fully makes you say this, but that I work to find solutions to business problems. Because you are far removed from the like, how do I litigate cases to the, you know, being a, a real partner and advisor to clients. And it's just, I don't know, in just three minutes or, or less, you just explained the whole, I think, life cycle. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes litigation isn't the isn't the answer, right? That's a tool within the toolbox that, you know, to solve a problem, but it's not necessarily always the right answer for the client. So I think that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing. We could talk, and I, it's hard for me because I show my bias on this show to the litigators because I, I understand your life more so than some of the uh, transactional attorneys at the firm. And I'm not just going to dive into the ins and outs of litigation because there's a few other things I want to I talk to you about, Scott. But we've met, you've mentioned a few times your hiring partner. And I just so happen to be recording two podcasts in a row with hiring partners at Foley. And I think you, you may, you and Peter may be the first ones who have had on, which is weird to say, actually. But tell me about your role in Houston. What does that mean to be the hiring partner for Houston? Yeah. So my job as the hiring partner in Houston is really focused on law school hiring. So focused on identifying our needs in Houston, number one. And then when it comes time to interview students, as as you know, for a firm like ours, we always go through a process called OCI, on-campus interviews. And so before the on-campus interviews, my job is to really get in the schools and help students understand what Foley is, who Foley is, who we are here at the firm, so that they, when they get to the OCI stage, they identify Foley as a firm that they may want to work for in the same way that I identified Gardeer as a firm that I wanted to work for, right? And then when it comes time to actually interview, I help coordinate all of the interviews and make a lot of the decisions related to who advances in the interview process. And then ultimately, I serve as the person during the summer program as kind of the lead person to answer questions and to let people know what it's like to work here at Foley and hopefully encourage them to want to practice law and also be here at the firm, want to practice law here at Foley. And so I guess that's my job. And I have a lot of thoughts on what my role is beyond 
the mechanics that I've just mentioned, but a lot of what I focus on is the mentorship through the program, but also after the program. And one of the things I like best about the role, other than I enjoy interviewing and I enjoy all of that part, but being the person who helps select and identify our team and grow our team has been really rewarding for me. But also, I don't feel as my role as hiring partner stops when somebody signs the letter, right? My role stays with the people. I try to develop really good classes who will ultimately make partner. And so I'm now at the stage where I've been in the role for long enough where the people that I hired when I first became hiring partner are just about to make partner. And that is incredibly rewarding. And the team that we've developed here in Houston is, in in my opinion, incredible. And it's fun to work with people that are just, number one, amazing people, but also great lawyers. You're seeing those investments essentially come to fruition now, which is really exciting. And I love that you raised the word mentorship because if you didn't say it, I was going to say it. And I think it's very clear that you enjoy mentoring within the firm, but also in, in the community. And I mentioned this before we started recording that we had to talk about this, which is I know you were recently honored and got, I think it says, I, I was able to pull it up as we were talking, but two presidents award from the Houston Bar Association for your work on the Diversity Inclusion Committee. So I know you're doing a lot within the broader Houston community, as well as what you mentioned about teaching at at the law school. So I'd love if you could just say a little bit about particularly your work on the Diversity Inclusion Committee of the Houston Bar Association as we, you know, start to wrap up over these next couple of minutes. Yeah. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time on is this kind of area of diversity inclusion. And part of what inspires me to really have that focus is that, you know, a lot of people, as you've heard in the podcast, really helped me along the way. And so I feel like first generation and underrepresented people in the legal profession or pre-legal profession need some help and need some mentorship. And so my goal is to try and be that person who other people were for me, right? And so one of the best ways I can do that is be really involved in the diversity and inclusion. And so I guess I've started this several years ago, but I've I've recently served as co-chair of the Houston Bar Association's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. I was appointed by the president of the Bar Association to be on the Implicit Bias Committee to really focus on training in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. And so there was a real focus on making sure that judges and lawyers and anybody in the legal justice process understood at least through a class. And look, classes are not going to solve diversity and inclusion issues. It's helpful to be aware of the issues. It's helpful to be more sensitized to the issues and understand the issues. But a class, taking a class, is a three or four, five, six hour class is not going to solve diversity and inclusion issues. Those, those issues are much larger, but it's a start. It at least makes people aware of the issues, at least from a more conscious basis. And so, yeah, that's what I do. I I spend a lot of time mentoring people who are coming up through law school, who are diverse and who I feel benefit or can benefit from having somebody answer questions for them and help them do mock interviews and help them just be a person who answers questions to help guide them through as others have done for me. And I'll end this question with one thing that I that I really enjoy doing, and that is I taught for the first time my trial advocacy class to undergrad students who, through a diversity pipeline program that the University of Houston undergrad school has put together, and it's identifying and they self-identify as maybe being interested in the practice of law, underrepresented students who 
don't know anything about the law. And this is a survey course for them. And it's my job to get them interested and let them know that although they don't see as many people who look like them at big firms or practicing law, that they can and should, if they're interested, follow that dream. And so it was a very rewarding class for me to teach. I'll teach it next year as well. But I love teaching at the law school. But this was a a totally different experience and and one that uh, I absolutely loved. That's fantastic. And I love getting the whole story because as you said, you've you've already highlighted a number of people who kind of, you know, but for them giving you advice at critical points in your life, you know, you'd have a great life, but you probably wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking to each other right now. (laughs) You know, we wouldn't have both gone to American University at the same time, but for those individuals. And also back to what I mentioned earlier as an example of like, this is what I mean by when someone's trying to figure out if an organization or an individual values diversity inclusion it's their willingness to be involved and mentor. It's not just about the words on the website or a shiny, shiny brochure. But with that, as we as we wind down, Scott, my my final sort of big question for you is what's your overall advice to either that law student or someone maybe junior in their career on on navigating a legal career? Yeah, so that is a big question, Alexis. Uh, and I think for me, and I get this question a lot in terms of in my role as hiring partner, I think my biggest piece of advice is love what you do. And if you don't love what you do, then change something so that you love what you do. If you are if you don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm looking forward to coming to work, and if you look at it as a job as opposed to a career, then make a change. Be happy, right? And so I guess along those lines, I tell people in the litigation group who I work with is choose a path that makes you happy. And again, if you're not happy, tweak something, come to me, tell me that, uh, you know, you, you're interested in this sort of case, or this is really bothering you. You know, that's the sort of questions I like to help people with. But I guess that's my overall advice is that if you're unhappy, make a change and continue to follow your dream. And for law students, I get this question a lot when maybe they don't do as well on their exams as they want, as they wished, and they still want to work at a big firm. And so I'm going to apply what I just said to that context, because I think it's important. This podcast, I know, reaches uh, many law students. And if you didn't get the grades that you wanted to get, and you don't feel like you're competitive, or you're not competitive for the big job that you really want, or the government job that you really want, or a small boutique that you really want, get started in practicing law. Don't be discouraged. Practice a couple of years, and you'll have the ability, you know, you'll gain those skills, and you'll have the ability to move. So often I hear, I'm really discouraged. Maybe I'll drop out of law school. Maybe this isn't for me. And I'm thinking, no, that's if you've really thought about it and that's the conclusion that you've reached, maybe it isn't. But generally speaking, start with a job, enjoy the job that you're in, get those skills, and then you can make a, a determination whether you want to switch to the job of your dreams, right? That's some great advice because ultimately the path is long, but the path is not necessarily straight. And if you've listened to other episodes of this show, you'll hear that, the, you know, there's more than one way to get into a large law firm. But with that, Scott, my final, final question for you is if someone wants to, has comments or questions for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Yes, please do. Find me on the website. Excellent. I hope you all take Scott up on his offer. And with that, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. 
and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.